As you can see on your outline this morning, we're, we're continuing kind of our discussion, <clears throat> excuse me, from last week, lessons on faith. Chapter 7 is all about bringing faith home, helping us understand what faith really means and helping us to see what faith really looks like. This morning, as we come to our passage today, I wonder if maybe we should, would begin our time together with this question, what is the barrier to faith? What, what is the, the preeminent barrier or obstacle to faith? I think the answer to that question is that you have no understanding of your need and thus you have no need for a savior. And so it comes fundamentally back to the, to, the, uh, to the recognition that because we have such a deficient or defective view of sin, we don't see our need for a savior. Jesus has been talking about this and bringing this to the forefront of his ministry for several weeks now as we have moved our way through the gospel of Luke it really kind of comes to, to a head in Luke chapter 5. This is right after Jesus has forgiven the man who is a paralytic, and he has called Levi, the tax collector, to himself. It says the Pharisees were grumbling in their hearts, and, and Jesus exposes them with this statement in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, when he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, this doesn't mean that there are two categories of people. It doesn't mean that there are actually righteous people and actually sinful people. But that the perception that you have about yourself will evidence whether or not you're going to look for help. Your posture towards sin, your understanding or uh, appreciation of the magnitude of sin will either cause you to look for a savior or cause, cause you to think, hey, I can do things on my own. If you've ever heard anyone say, I'm not so bad. If you've ever, ever heard somebody say, well, I am basically good, then you can begin to appreciate what we're talking about here in our passage today. As Jesus will summarize faith and as Luke will talk about this blending of all of the stories that we heard last week, the, the healing of the centurion's servant, the healing of the, the widow's son, the resurrection of the widow's son, and now comes front and center as we consider the evidence of a compassionate savior for a sinful woman in our story today. How bad is your sin? How do you see yourself in relation to God? This question is vital. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of question upon which the answer will determine your eternity. Because if you see yourself as not so bad, you will never look for a savior. Take the rich young ruler, for example. In Luke chapter 18, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus. We, we find this interchange in verse 18, where a ruler asks him, good teacher, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, that should have been the clue right there. That should have been the evidence that this young ruler needed so that he could answer the next series of questions in the right way. That should have been a clue to help this rich young ruler recognize that there is no inherent goodness within him or within us. That the only one who is truly good, truly perfect, truly righteous is God alone. So Jesus presses in and, and, and then fills out and asks a, 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 another question. Well, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. I'm good. Check. I fulfilled the standard. Check. I've done everything that God has asked me to do. Check. And without realizing it, this rich, young ruler says, I'm good, and thus, I'm God. And that's the danger. That's the danger of not coming to terms with the true condition of our hearts, not coming to terms with the sin that is in every one of us, and, and, and seeing ourselves as better than we should. And so in seeing ourselves as righteous, in, in, in thinking in some way our, our, our good deeds have outweighed our bad deeds and so that means that we are basically good. We are saying we don't need God. And so we put ourselves in a place of not receiving rescue, not receiving salvation because we can think we can do it on our own terms. So we don't need God. Jesus has been stepping in and trying to identify the, the real heart issues with a culture that was laden with self-righteousness and merit, of thinking they could perform, of thinking they could arrive, of thinking they could meet the conditions of the law in some way and, 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 and earn their way to God. Well, our passage this morning brings the desperation of the human heart front and center. We need to remember the context, though. Last week, was we, we saw Jesus. He is, he is levying a, a very stern rebuke, a very stern warning to the Pharisees. They're unbelieving, even in spite of seeing extraordinary works of God. This centurion's servant who was healed, this dead young man who was raised to life, a true testimony of a work that only God could accomplish. And yet their hearts are unbelieving. Yet their hearts continue to repel and reject the ministry of Christ, the identity of him as being the Son of God, as he claimed to be. And so Jesus again says, the Son of Man in chapter 7, verse 34, just leading into our time. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And yet you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And the story that Luke provides next will, will help us to see the heart of a compassionate Savior who is seeking to draw the heart of a sinner and by extension, 
drawing a heart of one who is a self-proclaimed righteous individual, but who is in desperate need of salvation as well. So look with me, if you would, at Luke chapter 7, verse 36, and we'll begin to see the willing heart of Christ. The willing heart of Christ. It says this, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Since our time in Luke, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus has been... uh, having a a ministry in Galilee. That's kind of the predominant focus here at the beginning of Luke's gospel in helping us to understand his Galilean ministry. But in Luke chapter 5, he's starting to gain some attention, some notice of these the the, the religious elite from around the surrounding regions. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 says, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. In Luke's account, which concentrates on his ministry in Galilee, we have yet to see a positive interaction of Jesus with the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees' heart was bent on stockpiling evidence against Jesus. They were bent on demonstrating that Jesus was not actually the Messiah. There was a a power struggle in their hearts. Jesus was telling the crowds the things that would put the Pharisees in desperate need of a Savior. And, and, And they wanted to think that they had arrived. And so for any religious leader who was breaking all the rules in their mind, to then tell them and condemn them of their own desperation, their own need for a savior, was something they rejected and something they wanted to find any evidence they could to put Jesus to the cross. We see inflammatory statements in every interaction of Christ with the Pharisees. Direct confrontation, strong rebuke, In our passage last week, Jesus unloads perhaps the most aggressive assault he has ever levied on the Pharisees up to this point. In Luke chapter 7, verse 30, we see the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by by him. So Jesus levels a vicious rebuke against this hostile religious elite group. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. John the Baptist, of course, brought the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, in a way that demonstrated the, the, the funeral aspects of this illustration, the, the fasting aspects of this illustration. And the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with that kind of gospel. Jesus, on the other hand, demonstrated the feasting aspects of that good news. And they accused Jesus of being a drunkard and one who hangs out and messes around with sinners and tax collectors. Their hearts were bent on rebellion in rejection. And here we find, perhaps surprisingly, 
that Jesus is willing to step in to another hostile situation. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, who does that? Have you ever been wounded? Have you ever had somebody who had uh, an axe to grind with you? Have you ever had anybody who, who had it out for you and was doing whatever they could to slander you, to, to disparage your good name, to try to bring up all the things that were wrong about you, fall, uh, spread lies about you, maybe even truths about some hidden things that were embarrassing about you? And then they had the audacity to ask you to a grad party or to ask you to a celebration like a wedding or a celebration like a birthday or to invite you to come to an open house. And you're like, I, I don't think so. At least that's what we do in our heart. When we have felt wounded, when we have felt attacked, when we have felt opposed, in our natural heart, we say, I don't want anything to do with your invitation. I don't want to dignify your invitation. But here is Jesus in a willingness to step in to awkwardness. A willingness to step in. And, and don't miss this. A willingness, a desire to invite this Pharisee this hostile aggressor, this one who has meant to stockpile evidence against him, Jesus steps in to invite him to relationship, to invite him to forgiveness, to expose, as we'll see, his sin, so that, so that this Pharisee named Simon will experience or enjoy the benefits of coming to terms with him, his sin and asking for forgiveness and then enjoying relationship with God. Jesus accepts this invitation. The Lord enters the Pharisee's house and as was customary, reclines at the table. In first century culture, they would, they would lay down on one elbow and they would eat in a laying down posture. The, the, the goal was to, uh, to, to add time, to relax, to enjoy fellowship. It was a, it was a fellowshipping, relational kind of culture. Unlike some of the, the food activities or events that we have, like some of you ladies and even some of you families who, who spend hours and hours preparing for the Thanksgiving meal or the Christmas meal, you get up in the morning very early, you prepare uh, throughout the morning and into the beginnings of the afternoon and everyone sits down and the food gets scarfed and 15 minutes later everyone's done. That's not what we're talking about in first century culture. It was the kind of event that would take hours. It was intended for relationship. Here we find Jesus willing to step in, willing to accept this invitation, willing to overcome awkwardness, to be vulnerable, to give this Pharisee home court advantage. And Jesus will do this on a numerous occasions that we'll find throughout Luke. Luke 11 and Luke 14, he does the same. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus subject himself to this kind of abuse? Because Jesus is the perfect teacher who demonstrates a consistency with his message. Going back now a couple of weeks to the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus who is willing to love his enemies, as we find in Luke 6, 27, who's willing to do good to those who hate you, who's willing to bless those who curse you, who's willing to the one who strikes him on the cheek to offer the other as well, to give to everyone who begs, to love his enemies, to do good, to lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus emulates the heart of the Father. He demonstrates mercy. He shows compassion on the ones who are truly undeserving as a reflection and as a confirmation of his true identity of being the Son of the Most High. Jesus steps in to this aggressive situation. He steps into hostility so that he can demonstrate consistency with his message and he can show truly that he is the Son of the Most High. Marvel at the willing heart of Christ. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's really easy to be jaded, isn't it? It's really easy to have a glass half full kind of perspective on life. And especially the people around you who have demonstrated an aggressive and hostile response to you. It's easy to think there is no hope. It's easy to dismiss them as being unredeemable. But Jesus steps in to this situation to to demonstrate his his uh, confidence is not in his ability but in the ability of the spirit to draw hearts to faith so Jesus is being faithful faithful to the opportunities in front of him faithful to entrust himself to the father faithful to depend on the power of the spirit and the power of the word to accomplish its work in the hearts of those who seem most resistant to the gospel Jesus is willing to demonstrate the mercy, the merciful heart of the Father. And when we step into similar situations, we reflect that we belong to the Most High, that we are sons of the Most High. Jesus had a willing heart. Marvel at the willing heart of Christ. Then we see, we turn in verses 37 to 38, we see the thankful heart of this sinful woman her grateful heart, you might say her prepared heart, her ready heart. I, I didn't really know what word to put there, but, but, but I want you to recognize that uh, in response to the forgiveness that she has experienced, there is a, a stepping in, there is a readiness, there is a desire for her to show her gratitude to Christ for all that he's accomplished for her. Recognizing who he is and expressing the the wonder of forgiveness and the compassion that she has sensed from Christ. Notice, and behold a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment. It was not uncommon in that first century day that a guest speaker who was asked to speak in the the local synagogue to be invited then to the religious leader's home either on the Sabbath or during the week. 
And when that, uh, that occurred, the doors would be left open so that those who were part of the village or part of the city could come and could stand around the outskirts of the, of the feasting that was taking place, and they could benefit from the conversation between that religious leader and the guest speaker. And so here enters this immoral, sinful woman into the back of this uh, hall or this room and it catches the audience by surprise so much that Luke draws attention to it by saying and behold it was shocking surprising for such a woman to have the audacity to enter into such a place she's described in at least three ways we see first she was a woman of the city meaning everyone knew her meaning this was a public display. She was not a stranger. She was not anonymous. Whatever she was about to do was going to be known by everybody, and her name was known by everyone in town. Second, she was a sinner, meaning her sin was public, meaning she had a reputation, meaning she was probably referred to as that woman, that person, you know, that person. Third, she was prepared. There was a gratitude of her heart. There was an experience of forgiveness. There was an, an, an enjoyment of reception and acceptance by Christ that she felt so that when she heard that Jesus was, was having a meal with this Pharisee, that she ran to her house, she went to grab this alabaster flask which was costly, and came with a purpose in mind, came to worship, came to thank, came to demonstrate her gratitude. Having learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in that Pharisee's house, she brought with her this alabaster vial of perfume. And not only uh, perfume that was part of a trade of being a prostitute, it was also widely used by women in general. The vial in which the perfume was stored was made from alabaster, which was an expensive kind of marble quarried in Egypt, which indicates that the perfume was really costly, was valuable. And overcome with emotion, this woman, who initially was waiting behind Jesus, now falls to his feet and begins to wet his feet with her tears. <laughs> this word, wet, is literally the Greek word to rain. There is a torrent of tears. There is this emotion that is just spilling out of her and wetting the feet of Christ. And here she is washing his feet, which was undignified in every way in first century culture. She's willing to stoop to serve, willing to stoop to demonstrate her gratitude, willing to put and expose herself to the shame of that kind of service. But what would have shocked the onlookers even more was that this woman let her hair down. For a Jewish woman to do so in public was considered indecent and immoral. But she was overwhelmed with emotion. She was not concerned with the shame that she might face. And then she breaks open this costly ointment and, and anoints Christ's feet with this ointment. She does this, of course, all because of a heart that is filled with gratitude, 
filled with thanksgiving. So she comes prepared to worship, comes prepared to demonstrate in some way her appreciation to Christ. Do we, who have experienced and enjoyed the benefits of forgiveness, the benefits of the work of Christ for us, do we also come with a thankful heart? Can it be said of us that the posture of our hearts, the, 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 the demonstration of our life, the, the character within us would, would show that we are those who are grateful to God? Have we come even prepared today to demonstrate our thankfulness to God for what he's done? And what do we bring? What do we bring that is costly? God doesn't care about your money. God wants the, entire, the entirety of your life. God doesn't want you to parse out the, the bits and pieces and say, he can have a little of this and a little of that, but, but I'm saving this for myself. God came with precious blood through his son, Jesus Christ, to purchase all of you, and thus you must give every part of yourself to him. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Those of us who have enjoyed and participated in the mercies of God, those of us who have benefited from the forgiveness of God, those of us who have come to terms with the sin of our lives and the spiritual bankruptcy of our hearts and that we deserve no relationship with God at all, those of us who have the mercy of God at the forefront of our attention will then by our life give in terms of sacrifice every part of ourselves. A living sacrifice. A sacrifice that is oriented towards holiness. A, a sacrifice that is oriented towards worship. This morning, God wants every part of you, not just the, the hour of your Sunday, this portion of the week, as a sacrifice and an offering of gratitude to God. He wants every moment of every day, every priority, every perspective, every word, every dime, every child that you might have, every relationship, every job that you have, every perspective of life and purpose for living. God wants to own it all. He's purchased it all. It belongs to him. Have we given ourselves in totality to God in gratitude for his great gift of his son, Jesus Christ, the precious blood? We turn now from this sinful woman and her gratitude, and it's contrasted now with this proud, self-righteous heart of the Pharisee, Simon. We see in verses 39 this defiance of his heart Notice it says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw that he saw this, he said to himself. Now, just pause there for a moment. I think it's by design that Luke hasn't identified the name of this Pharisee yet because he intends for us to insert ourselves into the story. 
Those of us who would posture as being uh, like this Pharisee, we have arrived in some way. We have uh, fulfilled the, the objectives of the law. There, we're like the, the rich young ruler. If, if, if we find ourselves in the, in the same kind of, of, of light, we are just like this Pharisee. When this Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. One commentator says the woman's actions could have put Jesus in a very very bad light. After all, she was a notorious sinner. Letting down her hair, washing, kissing, embracing, and anointing his feet was such a breach of propriety. They may, they may have led some to wonder why she felt the freedom to be so familiar with him and to reach an obvious but wrong conclusion about Christ, end quote. And yet Jesus was willing to receive this affection Jesus was willing in some respects to, to entertain the possibility and the risk of, uh, of, of uh, a damaged reputation. But he did that for the sake of allowing this woman to express her gratitude. This man, Simon, however, had a different reaction. His reaction was more oriented towards what is this prophet's knowledge? If, if he was really a prophet of God, then he would know who this woman is. He keyed in on what he thought to be ignorance of Christ. But Jesus was not ignorant. He was neither ignorant of this woman, nor was he ignorant of the secret conversation taking place in Simon's heart. And so he addresses this issue with a story. Verse 40, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, <clears throat> Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled their debt. Uh, he canceled the, de the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? In telling this story, Jesus now flips this question on, on its head. The, the question that Simon had in his heart secretly was, is Jesus the one he claims to be? Is he really from God? Is he really a representative of, of, of God himself? And Jesus, in, in, in addressing this and in, in, in providing this illustration, is flipping the question back on to Simon and saying, Simon, who is a Pharisee, in a self-prescribed defender of the law, are you really advocating for truth? Are you really, really representing God? And so Jesus builds this story of two debtors. It's important to recognize that both of these debtors owed a debt. And Simon would have known by implication that Jesus, Jesus was writing him into this story as a debtor. One of which owed 500 denarii, a denarii is a day's wage, so somewhere around a year and a half that this person owed. The other owed 50 denarii, which was 10 times less. Would have been almost about two months. Of course, sin is often referred to in the New Testament and in the Bible as a debt. 
So Jesus is making a correlation with a financial debt and a debt of sin. The parallel of forgiveness for sins. Which of these debtors will love the money lender more? Simon provides his answer in verse 43. Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. I think Simon knows exactly where Jesus is going with this story. (laughs) Simon, who is a teacher of the law, a Pharisee, one who would have been able to wrestle and grapple with difficult issues, knows what Jesus' intent is and knows what the obvious answer is. But there's a problem. The problem is that everybody in the room also knows the obvious answer to this question and Simon, as the one who is supposed to be a defender of truth and the go-to man for the law, he's got to save face and provide the right answer. So, he's trapped. And that's why I think he says, I suppose. (laughs) Because he, he knows he needs to provide the right answer, but he doesn't like it. Jesus affirms the answer, even though he was reluctant. And now he turns to open rebuke to his host, which would have been unthinkable in first century culture. For a guest to stand and publicly oppose a host was unthinkable. But Jesus does this. Jesus does this to expose his sin, to make it public, to bring it out into the open by way of turning the tables on Simon. He is doing this to help address his heart. He's doing this to help him understand and recognize his sin. And and by the way, Jesus is doing this not to bring shame to Simon, but to invite him into relationship. He's doing this because he knows that in order for Simon to have a savior, he needs to come face to face with his own sin. He needs to come face to face with his own need. So Jesus is seeking to do the the unthinkable in this moment. He's confronting in a very open and aggressive way, putting Simon on the hot spot, comparing him with this immoral woman who's in the room so that Simon can finally understand the condition, the true condition of his heart. What stands in the way of salvation for every one of us in this room is pride. And what stands in the way of a deep, abiding relationship with Christ is pride. It's not until we come to terms with the purchase price, the precious blood of Christ in our own depravity, our own condition of our hearts, that we'll begin to realize that we need Jesus. We need help from the outside. And Jesus, by the way, is not only a willing Savior. He's a forgiving Savior. That's what we find next. Verses 44 to 50. The forgiving heart of Christ. He doesn't leave Simon where he is. He doesn't dismiss Simon and write him off. He invites Simon to take a close inspection, an examination of his heart to see the true nature of his life and to invite him in just like he's invited this Wretched woman, at least in the minds and heart of Simon. Notice. Then turning 
towards the woman, he says to Simon. Okay, so, so, so Simon is in his peripheral view at this point, but he's talking to Simon while looking at this woman. Do you see this woman, he says, using her as the, the, the center, the objective of his talking points? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet her feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with, oil, with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. You think she's bad, Simon? You're worse. You gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no customary kiss. You didn't give me the, the dignified oil for my head. You consider her unworthy. Simon, she has performed the common courtesies that you would not fulfill. She has proven more honorable than you. She has proven more aware of her unworthiness than you. And her love that has filled her heart with gratitude has recognized what you cannot see is my worthiness, my loveliness, and the focus of forgiveness which comes from me alone. Luke 7:47. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. This word forgiven is a perfect passive indicative. The, the perfect tense points to past action with present results. It's kind of like the ripples on a pond, as we've talked about before. The, the, that, that rock that is thrown into the, the middle of the pond and the, the ripples that spill out. The, 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 the residual effects of forgiveness have filled her heart with love, and that love is now present here in this setting. So, so when did that previous experience of forgiveness happen? It happened at the moment of believing. It happened at the moment of faith. And we don't know, the, uh, Luke doesn't draw attention to the specifics of, of timeline, but, but it was at least in the moment that she recognized that Jesus was in that Pharisee's house. And she runs to, to her home. She, she realizes that she has something to give. She has a way for her to worship, a way for her to dignify her Savior, a way, a way for her to express her gratitude for forgiveness that she has felt. That faith precedes Forgiveness, this gift of faith that she has, she has been given has, has, has followed through with, with all of these activities or expressions of love for God and thus has demonstrated a heart that has been truly forgiven. Faith has drawn her. Thankfulness has marked her. And in, in verse 50, your faith has saved you. We've seen this already in Luke. In Luke chapter 5, verse 20, this is the, the healing of the paralytic. And in his friends, as they dropped him down before Christ through the roof, Jesus says in verse 20, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness that is not based on working. Forgiveness that is not based upon performance and putting your life together and, and dressing yourself up. It is, it is 
forgiveness that comes through the response of a heart of faith. Jesus turns his attention to Simon. Simon, if you want to enjoy the same benefits of forgiveness as this woman, you need to have the same faith. You need to recognize the same things about your desperate need for a savior. When Jesus mentions indirectly about the women's experience of forgiveness, we see now he turns the tables and he he talks about her sins being forgiven and now he directs his attention to her and makes this emphatic statement that is coming from him directly in verse 48. He says to her, your sins are forgiven. Same word, same tense, same recognition and now drawing attention to the one, the source of forgiveness being Christ himself. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Forgiveness has happened in response to faith. Christ demonstrates authority over sins as the psalmist will say in Psalm 51 verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin is first to God. And if we are to receive forgiveness, we must come to terms with the offense of our sin to a holy God. And when we do, when we come to a place of recognizing sin, when we come to a place of placing our faith in Christ, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's not based upon your own merit, but it's based upon the righteousness of Christ alone. As we find in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Salvation is based upon the righteousness of Christ, not the righteousness of you or the righteousness of me. And it's not until we come to a place of recognizing our need, of of seeing the gravity of our sin that we'll ever even want to have a Savior. Because Jesus didn't come to call the righteous to salvation, but sinners to repentance. Truly repentant hearts come to a place of recognizing the seriousness and the gravity of their sin. Have you acknowledged sin? Have you enjoyed the benefits of a willing Savior who draws you in to faith and fellowship with him through forgiveness? Father, I pray this morning for any of those in this room who have yet to experience the benefits of true saving faith. And I pray that they will not be like Simon, They will not be as one to reject your invitation, your call to forgiveness, that you will help them and help all of us in this room to come to terms with our desperation for a holy God and that we will all enjoy the benefits of forgiveness, the benefits of a willing Savior. And those of us who enjoy the benefits of salvation, may we be like this woman who come prepared day after day after day to express gratitude and worship and thanksgiving and to offer all of ourselves to you as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable act of worship. 
may we be daily worshipers by laying down our lives on a daily basis and giving them over to you as an expression of love and kindness for the great love with which you have loved us. We praise you this morning and ask that you would be glorified in and through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you this morning.